Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Lion Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been, and it always will be. Welcome to White Line Fever. It is uh, the first segment of this program, but the third part of our interview with the Choir Boys. And we have Keith, Paul and Guy here, and we are in Evesham, which I thought was pronounced Eversham, but it's pronounced Evesham. And um, one, I'm an Australian, as you can tell from my accent, and I just want to know, back in the day, how much did you hate the other Choir Boys, you know? Because they kind of like, you had to call yourself the London Choir Boys. By the way, they've been on this program in the past as well. So this is the only podcast ever had both of them. No, there was no, I mean, it happens to to a lot of bands, you know, especially Mm. UK bands, you'll see a lot of bands when they get to them. It's because when we went to America and... The Choir Boys with a C had, had, had had a record out a few years before we, you know, before we came on the scene. So, so that's hence we called the London Choir Boys. Mm. But um, no, it'd be, but initially yeah. it was Queer Boys, wasn't it? Like, uh, like yeah, first that, it was it was Choir Boys with a C H, and then yeah. it was Queer, and then it was Choir. I don't think that'd go down well in Australia. So, <laughs> oh, it's a 21st century, so, please. Yeah. Well, but, <laughs> No, I mean back then it was it was pretty you know it was a different time then and it, we, we we were told we had to change the, the name we thought it was sort of, yeah it was, we just thought it was a fun name you know but mm. but um yeah I mean you know, you know it'd be a good maybe we should go on to do a double headline tour with the <laughs> Choir Boys you know in Australia and now Australia is just I, you've you've never been have you I mean is there ever anyone anyone ever approached you about going I I get to have a parochial section of this uh, interview so yeah. Yeah, there's been talk of it recently, so let's hope something can come up with it, you know. There's... I think it'll happen. I hope mm. so. Yeah, we didn't call it with Japan at the same time. Mm. You know, it's been a long time since the band's been there. Mm. So, we just got to make the figures work. Mm. Yeah. Mm. How, how are things like, we just had uh, Classic Rock magazine go to the wall, but now they're, they're, it's been saved. This seems to me, compared to being in Oz, in this country, there is a pretty vibrant scene, you know what I mean? Like, Gene Simmons says rock is dead, but he might have been a little bit premature. I mean, how how would you characterise the sort of state of the industry and the genre now? I think it's, still, I think it's a lot more difficult for, for young bands now. I mean, it, even though there's so many avenues of getting your music out there, just there's not that big... Sort of like getting signed to a label and having that money behind you to be able to get yourself out there and and tour and all that kind of thing. But for a band like us, it's all, mm. it's actually we're one of the bands that's probably benefited from the the, the you know more or less the death of the record industry because mm. right? we, we we were always playing live. We had to go out playing live because we we we've never been like the most hip band in the world. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You know we've never had the media or be behind us or anything like that so we've, we've just had to go out there and do it ourselves and all the other bands are going to find that's what they have to do now mm. you know but we've been doing it all along so how have you found dealing with going from dealing with magazines to now doing you know websites and stuff and like like i actually have a job as a journalist i mean I'm, i don't think i'm gonna get paid for doing this but i but i mean what's it like it was it a big adjustment to deal with the started dealing with the alternative media or the online media where guys aren't really they don't do it for a living you know you read these stories and it'll quite how are you today i'm well that'll be actually the start of the interview online like i mean is that was that a big adjustment was that we had was any swallowing of ego to start sort of dealing with hobbyists you know what i mean like that you do more stuff though don't you Mm. you you end up doing more more stuff and some people might not have 
a big readership, and some mm. some do. But uh, mm. you know, back even back in the day, there, there was you fanzines. know, it was fanzines, mm. but there was mm. just you know, it was Kerrang, you know, Metal Hammer and you know, NME and Sounds, and you know, that was about it. So it wasn't a, a hell of a lot of press you you did even then, was there? Really mm. back then. Mm-hmm. Raw. So, raw, yeah. I asked Keith before, like, because Keith seems to organise all the interviews, but he's not in many interviews. I just wondered, like, do you guys all have, like, off-stage duties? Like, it's like a cottage industry where you all have various responsibilities. What, 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 can you tell us what your responsibilities are? You know, like, I think Keith does publicity and stuff yeah. like that. What, what do you guys do? I just bitch and moan at the, the, man, <laughs> the manager and the booking agent. I think that's called liaison. It's called liaison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's it. That's it. That's what it's called. Yeah. I, I just take instructions. <laughs> I'm serious. So before, before we go, um, is there a song on the new album that's got a really... Is there a story, is a song that's got a good sort of story behind it that you're aware of? You, you don't know who Twisted Love is about, but is there... Is there, is there I mean, lyrically, where do you, are you, do you guys draw very literally from experiences, or is it more uh, sort it's, of? It's a bit. It, it's a bit. It's a bit of everything. I mean, like, I I I, I write lyrics, but I don't write a whole song of lyrics. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll usually have a, the first few lines and the the title of the song and the melody and all that kind of thing. I mean, Paul, Paul writes. He usually has all the lyrics done himself. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and Spike, you know, when when he writes the lyrics, it's a very the song turns into something completely different from what I thought it was going to turn yeah, yeah, into, yeah, but yeah. in a good way most yeah. of the time, you know. Mm. So. Mm. Yeah, that's it. You know, we're you know, very trusting in each other what we're going to come up with. You know, suddenly, you know, it's going to suddenly come in with, like, you know, 20th century schizoid man or something. <laughs> yeah. You have to be told to shut up. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask one deep and meaningful question to finish off, okay? Um, if you'd learned one... Thing, one life lesson from your time in the choir boys one thing about human nature right um, or about yeah about the industry about the way people are um, what would it be oh god it's a big question I know but you deal with a lot of people a lot you know? of people mm. so you must you have a better insight into human nature than a lot of people well <laughs> I don't know human yeah, the, the, you, you see a lot of different sides of human nature going through the you know, music industry. You, nothing's ever quite what it seems a lot of the time, you know. So you, you do have your guard up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I mean, as far as like say lead singers are concerned, I'd I'd say, you know, if you if you're leaving at nine a.m., tell them seven thirty, because <laughs> otherwise you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. But he took it. He took it. You can't use that one now. So, what, what have you got for us? Come on. Well, apart from never get a train from Harrogate to, to Eversham, <laughs> I feel like I've been around the planet four times. <laughs> I don't, I, you know what? I, you, I mean, I'm pretty trusting in people. I've been let down by people, but who hasn't? Mm. You know, it's not really the victim of the of the music industry because obviously, you know. Any showbiz things attracts charlatans and mm. whatever, but you know, there's not been that many great disappointments to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm pretty happy with you know, there's a few people who just talk the talk for too long, mm. and just waste the time, but you know, we'll bounce back, we've got over it. Okay, We're in a great position now. 
Now you have to deal with most of the charlatans because you deal with I the just, press. So. I just agree with absolutely everything these two guys <laughs> said. Because <laughs> I have a clue. <laughs> Do you, do, you, do you, Keith, do you wish you were in the band in the 80s when they got these war stories? Do you ever wish you were in the band in the 80s? It just feels like yeah. <laughs> it. just feels like a Okay, we're going to finish up with a song. I'm going to leave okay. you be. Anyone? Midnight Collective. Yeah, there you go. What's the story behind it? Not a clue. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I'll tell you quickly what it is. is you know, we do these albums so quickly. You know, we work for Blink. Supposed to get it done. And it's like, you know, Spike will be, will be getting the music together, he'll be weaving away in a different room. And, you know, we have to get it done. That's not like long, long discussions over it, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that the quality isn't there, but it's, that's why I would have been very good at answering that particular question. Yeah.
Hi, this is Frankie Pulau from The Darkness. You're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to White Line Fever, and our next guest is a man. Now, I think I've run into him uh, um, since 1988 a number of times, but this is the first time I've actually been involved in a formal interview situation with Jeffrey Hode since 1988, and hopefully there won't be as much drama out of this interview as there was out of that one. Uh, hello, Jeffrey. I don't know, Steve. I think I hope there kind of is because you get a lot of you get a lot of miles out of this sort of stuff. If it gets controversial, don't you? <laughs> well, you tell us what you got planned. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> nothing. So, Jeff, uh, Ax- Axel Rose's love child, maybe. <laughs> so, Jeff is uh, now has reanimated the rich and famous, and he's had three. They've had three singles: uh, "Take Us to Your Leader," "Blast Off," and "Dirty Music." And now an EP, is that right? Is that what's happening now? That's what you. And... That's, ex- that's exactly right, mate. And, and, but, but the only thing different was that the Rich and Famous had never really uh, ceased. It, I just uh, took a brief liaison from it and to tick a few boxes like family and stuff. And, and, and I'm back in the saddle writing songs, and uh, this is my new offering to the world. Awesome. And, uh, and when I say offering, I mean. Sometimes when you're an artist, you don't know where you, where where you're going to head with this sort of stuff. You don't know what to do with it. You just have to do it. That's where it is. And who's in I the who's in the lineup now, Jeff? Who's uh who you got with you? Dean Dean Turner was actually in the Richard Famous all along, and we've got a new a new drummer called Dean Reeson. So we've got two Deans, <laughs> and Dean Reeson was a uh, always been a long time friend of uh, the band. Love a lover of all things Kings of the Sun and all things Rich and Famous. And Cliff Evan actually taught Dean drums for a, sh- a short period when he lived next door to me, so he's well well tutored and uh, ready to rock. Now, there was a fella called Quentin Elliott who was, he was in the other Kings of the Sun and he was with, and he, he did perform with you as well, didn't he? Um, it's Quentin from Melbourne, yeah? He moved to the Gold Coast. Yeah, he's, actually, he's actually from the coast and he, uh, he played in Kings of the Sun. I never... Rich and famous, though. Oh, right, but, okay. Uh, yeah, it was only ever the Kings of the Sun. He did the uh, he did a couple of show, big shows. He did the Sammy Hagar tour with Kings of the Sun, and he did the Kiss. His first baptism by fire was the the big Kiss at Carrara, the the, the last time that they quit forever. The farewell tour. <laughs> the four the four times before that they quit, they quit forever. <laughs> Kiss. He was uh he was in the, on the stage with us with that. Now. I, there's so many pressing questions uh, to ask you, but because this is the first segment and it's the one people are going to hear first, I, 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 I wanted to, I wanted to sort of touch on some recent events. In that you, this song, which uh, the Rich and Famous did, the horse you rode in on, you know, it's obviously an anti-terrorism song, and there was a um, obviously we've had this horrible event. Um, I just wondered what happened to that song. Um, in that there was a video that was very had a lot of sort of uh, I guess file footage of uh, you know it was quite a well done video. I don't know whether a fan did it or you did it. Yeah, it was a, it was a fan video, and it was a great video because at that time I think it was right, right about that time the whole ter- terrorism thing was happening. But he did it, and we just sort of let it roll. But if you actually listen to the lyrics of the song, it's it's more about it's it's, it's like three verses to the song. And it's like the first verse is like about terrorism, suicide bomber on the dance floor, and and it says you know that, that chorus. I, if, I don't know if I can say, but fuck you and the horse rode in on. Yep. And then the next, second verse is about uh, the whole Easy Rider 
concept of that that movie Easy Rider. If you think you're a free person, go for a drive around your country. Like that. remember the movie Easy Rider was yep. about that. They, they, the, the 60s was supposedly this free place where everyone just could do anything. But when they actually took a, a ride on their motorbikes, they confronted all these all this negatives. And and that was the second verse. And then the third verse is like it's just basically saying it, nothing's what you think it is. And fuck, fuck you, live your own life. Fuck you and the horse you ride in. And if you, if you want to try and stop me from living my life the way I want to live it in a free world, fuck you and the horse you ride in. Yeah, and yeah. the first one, the first verse was about you know, terrorism, suicide bomber on the dance floor. It's like, what the fuck are these people doing here? And in the situation, living in amongst us, going to the things that we're enjoying and we've created and then destroying it. Yeah. That was the first verse. And then the second verse was about another aspect of that freedom. So it wasn't all just about that. The video disappeared, I think. I can't find it anymore. Is it still on YouTube? Or? I, I haven't seen it for a while myself yet. Right, right, okay. Um, okay. I, 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 it was never never a case of me pulling it down because that was just someone, someone else's expression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, um, I said we play um, a song every five minutes. Uh, Jeff, uh, which one can we play now? You can play Take Us to Your Leader, which is the name of the album, which, uh, strangely enough, was one of the strangest songs I've ever written. And it was all about the whole reptilian uh, Illuminati thing that's been flooding the internet and it's growing this gigantic groundswell of conspiracy theories. And, and the, the funny part of that, the, the, the tongue-in-cheek part of that, and then sometimes you watch it, you start going, maybe there's something in this. But it was about that aliens are living amongst us and have come from outer space and there's this reptilian Illuminati that are living amongst us and that's why certain people are famous and all that stuff, but it's a tongue-in-cheek take on that. Take us to your leader.
this is Jeff Ho from Kings of the Sun. You're listening to White Line Fever. Well, welcome back to the program. Hope you're enjoying it. It has been a while since the last one, and I want to apologise. And uh, I don't think we've ever had uh, this many interviews in a, a single program. There's plenty more uh, good stuff to come. But this is the Rugby League segment. And uh, before I go into that, I have to plug things. I have to plug WLF Podcast on Twitter and White Line Fever on Facebook. And tell you all that uh, my book, uh, Touchstones, is out now. And if you go to uh, pretty much any you go to rugbyleaguehub.com right at the top of the page there's a big banner where you can order a copy uh and it's not in the shops until june 28 which maybe by the time you listen to this it is june 28 but to coincide with the release i'll be doing a, a special episode of white line fever uh chatting uh to jono waters uh, about my desert island discs so uh, that was actually recorded like a year ago, um, but it was uh, I held it until uh, the book uh, came out to coincide with that. Okay, our rugby league guest this week is Phil Brown. Now Phil Brown heads up TriTag Rugby in the UK, and uh, he has something like 610 teams. But I seem to think I first heard Phil's name and heard from Phil when he was involved in the Singapore Rugby League. He's also been involved in the Fiji uh, Rugby League, and I. I I actually, like you, have no idea what has led him through those um, stops to be sitting here today, here in a very sombre part of London at the moment, uh, London Bridge. But um, good afternoon or good morning, whenever. Well, it doesn't matter. You could be listening to this any time of the day. Phil, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, um, so what's the story? I mean, how did you, uh, you? Obviously, your involvement in rugby league is as diverse as anyone I've ever met. Um, when, when did you first sort of encounter the game? So, um, yeah, grew up in Sydney. So uh, my, my old man, he's originally from Fiji, and my, my mum is from Singapore. Um, so I was born in Sydney. Um, obviously, rug, rugby league is king where I grew up. And um, like all my mates, got involved as, as a youngster. My dad used to coach one of the local teams. Um, so I played um, for a club, a junior club called the North Girl Girl Knights. And... Um, some players that I, I had the pleasure of playing with, um, you know, George Smith, who um, played all my juniors with him, ended up playing for the Wallabies. Uh, Josh Gamgee played for the West Tigers. Um, Chad Randall played for Manly Seagulls. So I was lucky to play with some great players, um, make, you know, made some great friends. And then um, I was really, my passion was the international game, and I just, I just saw there was, there was, there was more that could be done, and um, you know, admired other sports and how how well they expanded in the international arena and I thought well, why isn't rugby league doing that so um, so I'm just trying to think which came first Singapore or Fiji so yeah I was, I was still playing uh, it was quite young so 21 I went over to Fiji I, I, I got to witness Fiji versus England A it was at the time so John Keir was taking an England um, under 21s team um, just coincidentally I, I swapped my jersey with uh, Wayne Price, who I bumped into at Magic Weekend, and he still got my jersey. So <laughs> many, many years later, um, it was good to catch up with him. But um, so you, you, you had several full international caps for Fiji, didn't you? So I had one, one full cap, but I had uh, seven for the Australian Fijians. Played some sevens as well. Um, so I went over to Fiji as a 21-year-old. I saw Fiji playing, and then I noticed that none of the Fijians that were playing lower grades in the NRL, like they might have been playing Premier League or under 20s and none of them were getting picked for the national team. So basically I had this idea that, um, you know, there's some great talented Fijians playing, like Wes Nagama was uh, 
captain of the St George Illawarra Reserve Grade side at the time. Um, none of these guys were getting picked, so I wanted a, I wanted a pathway for the Australian Fijians to be able to make the Fijian national team, which in turn would make the team stronger. So I set up the Australian Fijians, and we, we entered a few sevens tournaments. We entered the um, it was like the Wollongong sevens, um, Arara Valley sevens, and and then we got recognised by the FNRL, so Fiji National Rugby League recognised us, and um, they endorsed what we were doing. And then it started the uh, the first battle of the Bardi fixture, which was. Um, the Australian Fijians versus the Fijian residents, and after that game every year, they pick the national squad. Um, so I feel very proud that I was able to start the Australian Fijian Rugby League to give a lot of these players that never would have, that would have been out of sight, out of mind, a chance to get caps, full caps. So I, I, I had the one game which was in 2005 versus the Cook Islands, and one, you know, I wasn't the most talented player around. I tried really hard, and that's something I'll, uh, you know. I'll take to my grave being able to say I'm an international player, so I'm very, very proud of that. And, and I assume that you weren't being paid big bucks to do all this, so how, how were you putting food on the table while, while you are doing all this in your spare time? Yeah, a good question. Um, so I was work, working full time, um, you, know, you know, training as much as I could, um, you know, pumped in a lot of money um, to try and get it going, but it was just for the love of it and for the love of being able to give people opportunity. Um, so I was heavily involved with Fiji Rugby League for a number of years, and then I I decided to I wanted to I, I thought I dabbled in a little bit of rugby union just like with my friendship with a few of the guys like George Smith. There's a guy called John Payne I used to play with, played for uh, Tonga in the 2003 World Cup. So I thought, oh, wouldn't mind like my mum's from Singapore, I wouldn't mind going to trial for the Singapore national team and try and play Hong Kong Sevens just to say you know a dual international. Um, so anyway, I went. I went to Singapore. I trialed. They offered me a contract. Mm. Basically, they weren't going to bring any overseas players. So I was playing um, for Manly Rugby Union. I just played uh, one season with them, mm. and the year I played with them, I said, you know, I'm playing a, a decent level back in Australia. You know, I want to keep playing for this team. Playing, playing with some guys that have, you know, played, playing, gone on to big things. And um, yeah, I said to them, um, you know, I don't want to live in Singapore, I was working for Qantas Airways, I had a good job and you know, uh, I had a girlfriend back in Australia, so I didn't want to go, but they said if you're going to play for us, we have, you have to move to Singapore. So anyway, I, I turned the opportunity down, but that led me to, when I, when I was training for the team, I saw these guys and a lot of them, they were expats that had played rugby league before, mm-hmm. and I said, oh, you know, you got, you got how, how many caps have you guys had for Singapore? Oh, 10, 12, 15. You know, oh, do you miss rugby league? And they're like, oh, I miss it so much, but there's no opportunity to play in Singapore. So I thought, with the amount of expats there is over there, we've got to, we, we should start Singapore rugby league. So I started it. Uh, I put some expressions of interest out to try and get a board together. We've got a Kiwi, uh, Graham uh, Timeway, his name was. He was a Kiwi businessman. He was a chairman. Um, so we, we, we got a board together. It gathered momentum, but then Graham moved away, and obviously I was living in Australia, so... Um, it, what, it didn't sustain, but um, it's a shame because it has huge potential. So Singapore Rugby League, if there was a backer, they could, could pump some money in and get it going. I, I believe it would definitely work, as, as what we've seen in Hong Kong. Hong Kong Rugby League go from strength to strength. How, um, how did you end up over here, Phil? Okay, um, I, I, I applied for uh, the CEO role at the London Scholars. So I was successful in that one. Um, that was uh, Hector McNeil, the owner of the club. He interviewed me at the 2008 Rugby League World Cup. Um, so went and watched the game and uh, had an interview with him. And um, a couple couple weeks later, he, he said, "Congratulations, you got the job." 
So I moved over to to uh, take up the role, and I also played for the club as well. Um, so I did one one. Is that kind of the deal to play for the club, or was it just an incidental thing? You know. Oh, it's just just incidentals, a fair few injuries as well. <laughs> so I was mainly coming in as an administrator, not for my playing playing prowess, but just giving myself a rap here. I was top try scorer in the club, so happy with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I came over, did one season at the Scholars. It was a pretty tough season because my dad had a heart attack two weeks in, um, and I lost a good friend and a cousin all in all in the space of. Um, about six weeks, so it was sort of it was a bit of a rocky start for me. So I wasn't I wasn't in the best mindset. So I did a year, um, I enjoyed the experience, was very grateful for it. And then it was the uh, when the global financial crisis uh, was hitting, um, probably the worst time to start a business. So myself and a, a guy called Alistair Davis, who's from the Shire, we got together and we said, oh, you know, there's touch rugby is huge in London, but there's no tag rugby and. You know, Oz, Oz tags such a mainstream sport back in Australia. There's so many Aussies here, so we thought, yeah, let's, there's a business there. So we got together. Um, I was full. I went full time. Uh, got got a small four-team league going on a Monday and a four-team league going on a Wednesday at Pintry Park, uh, which is in North London. And then fast forward eight years, and um, yeah, hitting the 600 team mark, and we've got um, if you include part timers, we've got 24 people working for us. So yeah, it's been. That's how I got here, was through London Scholars, um, and I was quite lucky that my father was a Fijian that joined the British Army, because it was a British colony back in, back in the day, mm-hmm. and they recruited Fijian soldiers every year, so my dad was a British soldier, so I was, like, I, I was eligible to get my British citizenship, um, so yeah, so Scholars brought me here, I, I was able to stay here through my father, um, through citizenship, and um, yeah, so I started the business, and it's going from strength to strength, and every year we're we're growing at a pretty good rate. So this year we we had over a thousand new players playing. Wow! Tag for, for wow! Players. And you employ how many people? So including the part timers, twenty twenty four. Wow! Well, so that's, that'd be more than any Super League club, wouldn't it? I'd, I'd uh, imagine so. Not including the players, obviously. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I don't think like a Wigan Warriors would have twenty four backroom staff. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But um, that's something we're very proud of, and and um, we we do have a partnership with the RFL, and that's something where we want to work closer with them. To bring more people into the game yeah. um, in a number of ways, so like our participation numbers, like what what uh, NRL former NRL CEO Dave Smith was doing with the touch rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, so our players will count as rugby league players. But not only that, like when um, Australia played England at Olympic Stadium in London last year, we took 150 people to that game. Mm-hmm. Um, people that had never seen rugby league, um, so it's exposing people to. The great game of rugby league for the first time as well, and hopefully they enjoy what they see and keep coming back. Oh, before we move on to our final um, topic, which is why we happen to be here today, couple, do, do, all the time you've put in over the years, out of your own time, uh, have you ever, have you, have you ever had players make um, sort of seem ungrateful? Have you ever? Why am I bothering? Have you ever had players who uh, who just take and don't give? You know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I mean, on the other on the other spectrum, there's been a lot of players that are, um, you know, amazing. Um, they're just so grateful for all the work you put in. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the Fijian players, uh, like Aquila Wadi, I remember I, when I played, he was a 17 year old. I was I was playing centre, and he was my wing, and we're still great friends to this day. Mm-hmm. Alani Vinikethi that played for the Roosters. Um, 
remember he so when when the Australian Pigeons were, were set up he was a 17 year old and um, a young young Jared Hayne was going to play and then um, I remember we we were doing a an exhibition game at Fiji, in the Fiji Day celebrations so on Fiji Day every year there's a big uh, get together with the community uh, probably about six seven thousand people at Granville Oval and myself and uh, the committee at the Australian Fijian Rugby League introduced rugby league for the first time into this day mm. so it used to be uh, they used to play other sports so we got rugby league in and um, Jared Hayne was going to have a run for us and the Parramatta uh, um, recruitment officer at the time Rod Reddy came down and um, made sure we, we didn't play him because mm. uh, they knew he was on the, he was going to go on the big things but but yeah, so to answer the question, um, there's been a lot of people that have been really grateful for all the, the hard work and the sacrifice that's put in. There, mm. but, but there has been a lot of people that, you know, they they take it for granted as well and mm. um, and things like that. But no, I like to look at the positives and, you know, really, I'm glad that I've been able to give these people an opportunity. Now, um, as you can hear, listeners, um, Phil's a very sort of humble, polite guy and, and you wouldn't think that he's one of the more successful administrators in a sport linked to rugby league in this part of the world anyway but the other thing I was going to ask you was about your your dealings with rugby league administrators given that you you're a fan uh, as much as anything else um, how have you how what, what have been the positives and, and maybe the negatives of dealing with the sort of mainstream official of the sport in, in both hemispheres you know um, you know I think uh, it's, it's it's sometimes it's it's tough because some of the administrators are part-timers um, like some of them are, are volunteers I'm talking about the developing nations but when I talk about the RFL um, I think it's really hard for us because they don't know what Oztag is like obviously any Australian listening knows how big Oztag is and um, you know and how big how much potential we have um, it's been a few years where we've tried and tried to get the message across the RFL um, you know like we've, we've both Alistair and myself have, have, you know we, we've grown up on rugby league so we care about the game but if we were if we were neutrals and we were getting you know uh, not not making any progress we might have walked away from this partnership mm-hmm. but but um, yeah every year as we are growing they they've been more supportive and yeah, and hopefully we can get it to a level where Dave Smith was, um, you know, he he, he realised how, how crucial the touch partnership was to them and hopefully that's the way, the way they'll value us moving forward. Okay, before we go, Phil, um, we were actually, we're in, we're in Pret in, uh, in in London Bridge, part of London, and uh, but we were actually going to HSBC Bank and unfortunately it's right next to Borough Market and it's closed because of the terrorist attack. Um, uh, so obviously uh, our problems are infinitesimal uh, compared to what's happened around here in recent days. But uh, can you explain to the listeners um, um, why we were meeting at HSBC back? Yeah, sure thing. So um, as, as I mentioned previously, I've been a big fan of the international game for a number of years. So it started off probably when I was about 16 or 17 and just the, uh, the lack of international matches and international coverage and international merchandise was um, quite frustrating as a fan. Um, I remember when I first played for Fiji, um, I was playing for um, Narrowena Hawks A-grade team and we were lucky uh, to have some some pretty good players that I played with like Cliffy Lyons, Jim Sedaris and um, so anyway I brought back some Fiji kit to training and and all my teammates were going, wow, you know, where can we get some? Where can we get a hold of that? And unfortunately, you, you just can't. 
So I um, approached Steve because I've been reading his articles for a number of years and I really love his passion for the international game and you know we've both been ar around it for a long time like um, you know we were both in Toronto witnessing the, uh, the Wolfpack uh, playing their first ever home game. Um, so basically so I approached Steve and um, said got this great idea that I think will work. I remember it, uh, it was back in back at the 2013 World Cup. Um, so Papua New Guinea were playing New Zealand at Headingley and um, Papua New Guinea kit, if, if, for those that, that have seen it, it's a fantastic kit. It looks great and, um, you know, in rugby league's national sport over there. So basically they, they stocked a number, like a limited amount of jerseys at Headingley and uh, sold out. Um, and I thought, wow, you know, like, cause, um, you know, there is a market out there for it. And um, so the USA team, when they shocked the world, I rang up every supplier that I knew and I said, can I get my hands on a USA jersey? I want to jump on the bandwagon to show my support. Um, and basically couldn't buy one. So I thought, this is where Steve and I come in. We wanted, we've, um, we've set up our own business um, where we're about to launch and we're going to stock um, International Rugby League uh, merchandise. Um, so how it would work, we'd, we'd start every, every month we'd bring in a new nation. So we might start with... Um, USA, for example, and then Fiji, and maybe maybe PNG, et cetera, et cetera, um, and then grow from there, and um, hopefully, um, you know, feel that feel that need that the uh, the international rugby league fan has uh, has missed for a long time. Yeah, Phil, Phil's putting in 85% of the work and 100% of the money so far, so I've got to pull my socks up and do a bit more work. But thanks for joining us, Phil. I'm sure all the listeners will find your story pretty fascinating, and. Uh, I think uh, most of the listeners will agree we need more like you. Um, anyway, uh, um, uh, I'm not going to wish you luck because I've got to wish myself luck as well in the venture. But thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. And um, yeah, thanks for listening to the story. Now, um, um, I guess uh, these are uh, trying times here, but um, I heard this song the other day and uh, it's by a German band called Ed Guy and the song is called England and it's pretty damn funny and uh, after the song we're going to actually hear from Dirk Sauer, the guitarist in Ed Guy. It's been a long time since I've been with you You may be grey-green But matchless and wine I want you to sniff of you went to Birmingham New Street to take a ride of a rock with dirt on a suspiciously panting train high on diesel fumes I pondered on my way I may like To admit this was um, an improper try of a joke, but it rhymed in talking humor. You've got to know I'm just another German bloke who loves afternoon tea and Bob Catley and Mr. Bean, who loves to 
the program and that was the song England by Ed Guy and normally we don't play the band uh, before they come on. Uh, I've got Dirk here from Ed Guy. How are you Dirk? Hello, how are you? I'm pretty good. <laughs> now that song I thought it was absolutely hilarious, uh, England's Got Steve Harris and I, I figured it mightn't be one of the songs you pick because you've got a new album to promote so I thought I'd play it first. Um, that song, now how did you come up with that? Where, what, was the, what were the origins of that song England? Well, actually, Toby is a big, big fan of England. He's he's doing vacation here and there, and um, he just loves the, the the old buildings and the uh, the yeah. It's it's a special place. It's like Australia is also a special place, but it's different. And, yeah, yeah. Um, he pretty much loves the, the uh, old furnitures and their way of I don't know. Uh, old English houses and stuff and uh, I think that's one of his one of his uh, initial points where he thought about doing a song about England and of course it's the mother of, of uh, great music like all the Black Sabbath Deep Purple whatever so many the Beatles the yeah. Stones I mean all of the many of the best bands of the world I'm from England. So. I don't know if you know. I'm actually in London at the moment, even though I'm Australian. And the okay. the great thing, the idiosyncrasies of the people too. Very, it's very endearing, isn't it? Like I think, uh, you know, Bill Bryson, the travel writer, said, you know, talked about tractor drivers who could recite Shakespeare. It's a very, you know, what I mean. That people here are very curious and very, uh, um, and they're, they're knowledgeable. You know what I mean? And it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a great, it's a great culture, which. Mean, means it's a bit of a tough week, really. For but we don't want to date the interview. But it has been a tough week here with uh, with some terrorism. So yeah, t- yeah I know. Tell, Sorry for that. tell us uh, tell us a little bit about monuments. Uh, the new uh, 
DVD and uh, double CD package that you're putting out. And I guess looking at your social media, you're getting all uh, uh, nostalgic, aren't you guys? Uh, you know, with uh, you know the fact that you you know you started 25 years ago and you're still about 26. <laughs> I mean, uh, your, your first. Yeah, I mean, yesterday we had the. Yesterday, 25 years ago, we played the first show ever with that guy. And uh, of course, it's a pretty nostalgic time. I mean, you you got to go really back in time, 25 years. And um, yeah, we did that when we went through all the archives, collecting material for this Monuments edition. And um, there are so many stories included in those pictures, those songs, recordings, albums, uh, it's 25 years full of full of the band's history, so uh, of course you get nostalgia, and it's it's something you are really proud of. And um, yeah, the point when we said okay, we're gonna do and do a best of edition was like um, we have to celebrate this with our fans because without the fans it wouldn't have been possible, and they are the ones that carried the band over all these years. And um, we wanted to give something back, like a like a present for for us but for the fans as well and uh, the turnout is a brilliant edition of monuments that everybody should have because it's i'm so looking forward to having this this earbook in my hands mm. and watch these 160 pages of pictures and listen to these songs and watch the dvd and it's just it's a great thing i i'm really proud of it and um I, I hope Nuclear Blast are going to make it pretty soon too, that I can have one in <laughs> advance on my table. Do tell us a little bit about, now I, I don't know if I've pronounced the, the name of your hometown, is it Folder? Folder? Is that how it's pronounced? Folder. And tell us a little bit about the hometown. Uh, it was a big base for um, uh, US Army in, in the, after the Second World War. It was seen as when the, the, the sort of corridor through which the uh, Soviets would invade the West if they did a land war. Um, what was it? What was it like growing up there? Uh, and 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 why did you form a band when you were so young? And and were you always going to sing in English? Like these are all questions I had. So yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Fulda is quite it's quite alright for growing up. I would say it's it's not not called L.A. of Germany, but uh, <laughs> the the scene was pretty small when we started. I mean, there were a few bands, but they were more into like let's say a bit harder or more fashionable music in the mid 90s and we started doing this power metal thing which was absolutely unhip back then and everybody told us uh, with that kind of music you're not gonna do anything but for some reason we just kept on what we wanted to do and um it was the right decision and um it took us out of Fulda pretty fast Lucky us, because the scene was really small, I mean, I have to say. But, um, yeah, we had the army base, which is pretty good, because our rehearsing room is still in that area. It's an old old army building, and uh, we used to, to have a rehearsal room in the tower. There was, like, a little, little airport as well here. And uh, it was also in the beginning of the 90s. I think 1990 or 91, the or 92, the... The army left from Fulda, so uh, lots of buildings for rehearsing rooms and stuff, which was pretty cool. Um, in fact, the geographical uh, point of Fulda was would have been pretty would have been a disaster if there would have been a real Cold War, mm. because there were like computer games about it. Because it's like 
Fulda gap or something is the thing called. You can really, if there would have been happened, Fulda would have been the first city that the Russians would have taken, maybe. Mm. Whatever. They didn't, lucky us. <laughs> and uh, lucky us, the World War. Uh, yeah, there was no World War. The, the Cold War just, yeah, I don't know, it's still there, but not that bad anymore. Mm. And... Um, yeah, Fulda is it's 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 pretty okay for living, not really for rock and roll, but um, it keeps you down to earth if you go back here for your living, for your day life, which is pretty cool, and uh, it's good for raising kids as well. And uh, I pretty much love it. My family lives here, and uh, I'm I'm happy here. And the, it's it's always been Edgar's home base in a way. We have the storage here and and all the decoration stuff from the past tour, so uh, it's like that. Let's have a song, and we'll, we'll delve into your early days again in the next part of the interview. What, what song would you like us to play? Um, I would play something from Vainglory Opera, because this was made most of the first record when we really made it outside Germany or, or had some press reactions and stuff. So you can pick something from Vainglory Opera.
We're back with uh, uh, Vivian Campbell, third part of our interview. And in this part, I, I wanted to get a little bit um, philosophical or existential a little bit. All the travails that you know, you, um, you've been through over the last couple of years, I just wondered if, if, if you'd learned something from it. If anyone, if you'd, people said what, what advice you would offer them um, with everything that's happened, what, what, would, you, what would your answer be? Um, gosh, there's, there's a lot that's gone on with me in the last few years, you know. Um, the... Uh, you know, I, I just, I, I really, I've always been a very positive person, but you know, I, when I got my cancer diagnosis back in uh, 2013, it was, and it really did um, kind of heighten that emotion within me, you know, and um, I really, I, I do realize even more so than ever, you know, how fortunate I've been in my life and, and how fortunate I am still, you know, mm-hmm. and, and each and every day is an absolute joy. And, you know, so I, you know, we're here, this is not the most luxurious surroundings and yeah. certainly not by Def Leppard standards, yeah, exactly. you know, but, yeah. but I, I still I still take great joy out of it, you know, because the hour and a half that we go on stage and play that music, it's a great privilege to play with such great musicians and to be able to play such, such good music. So, um, you know, even going back to, to, to the start of my career with, with, with Dio, you know, I, I 
the way you know I was fired from Dio and, and it was kind of misrepresented for years that, that I actually turned my back on the band and I left which is completely untrue mm. you know and so it, it left a very very bad taste in my mouth and I wanted nothing to do with with Dio, the band, the mm. music, or even the genre of music, and, and kind of left all that behind me. And, and a lot of things happened, you know, um, one of which was the passage of time, obviously. Another was, was the fact that, that Ronnie passed away yeah, yeah. six yeah. years ago. And, and after that, you know, I, I kind of, it caused me, or it gave me uh, the chance to reflect upon a lot of things. And I, I, I look at that time in my life and, and that music very, very differently now. Mm. Um, for years and years and years, I denied that it was part of my legacy. And it's mm. actually, it's as much my legacy and Vinnie Appice's legacy and Jimmy Bain's legacy as it was Ronnie's, because we wrote those songs with Ronnie. We made mm -hmm. those records mm -hmm. with him, but we weren't allowed to have ownership of them mm -hmm. for years. I mean, I've still never been paid for them and I never will be, but that's that's beside the point. You know, the, the point is that they're still part of our creation mm -hmm. and they're still, they bring us great joy to be able to play them mm -hmm. because no one will play them better than than the, the original people so you know unfortunately we lost Jimmy but there's Vinny and I are still alive and kicking and, and while we are we're still taking great joy out of playing this music I'm looking forward to seeing it in a few hours um, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about and this is the last question I'll let you go is the uh, separating the art from the artist you know people particularly you know you pl you're playing music that people identify with one person and and, and they get caught up in the politics of who got on with who and who had a fight with who and stuff like that. How important is it to separate the art from the artist? The people who've just been at your um, meet and greet, you know, they would kind of struggle. They like you, you know, they don't just like the music, they like you. When you consume music, can you separate it? Can you go, well, I don't care if he's a good guy or not when you listen to something? Well, what, what, you, know, you, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Separating the art from the artist and having a different... You don't care what the guy's like. Yeah. The cult of personality, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, I've always subscribed to the, the notion that you should never meet your heroes, you know, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you'll only ever be disappointed. Yeah. And, and i got to say that, that most of the time when I have met people that whose music I've really admired I have been disappointed mm. and, and not because of anything they've done but probably and more likely because of the what I built up in my imagination as to what I thought they should be or, or could be um, you know it, they are two very very different things you know you, you should you should never try and, and look beyond what it is that that is the immediate and gives you pleasure if you if you enjoy somebody's music just take it at face value or, or take it for what it is, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with Def Leppard, I've noticed that a lot, a lot of Def Leppard fans are very, very rabid. Mm. And um, especially now with the advent of social media, yeah, there yeah. is a connection, you know, the mm. barriers have come down. Mm -hmm. You can no longer live in your ivory tower <laughs> and just go on there. You know, you, you kind of have to interact to a certain extent with people. Uh, you, well, you don't have to, but but there is there is great benefit to it, and and I for one do it. I'm very active on my Facebook page, but at the same time, I've also learned to to draw a line, mm. you know, to not go too far because there are some strange people. <laughs> you mean in, like answering comments and stuff like that? Do you like you just let it go? You know? No, I, I yeah. do answer, yeah. but I only, yeah. I'll only answer where appropriate. Like I'm, yeah. I'm married, you know, mm. and I'm very much in love with my wife. But and so I would never reply if some woman came on my Facebook page and and started offering herself to me. I would never <laughs> I would never reply to that. I have the same know? problem. With <laughs> I know. Don't you hate that? You know. Shit. 
There you go. So, but but other people, you know, I I, I love playing guitar, and, and some guys come on there and ask me guitar questions, like what kind of pickups are in your yeah, Les Paul, yeah. and I'm happy to engage that. You know, it, it's 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 all part of the fun. I'm glad you understood my question. Didn't think I was nuts asking that. And the follow up question. This is the last question. After you've met someone like a hero, and he lets you down. Does it affect your enjoyment of the, their art after that? Uh, no, it does not. Yeah, no, yeah. no, because like I say, it, it's my own fault for wanting, expecting, or uh, demanding that that person fulfill my expectations yeah, of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. my my imagined expectations. So, uh, no, the music is is what's important. You know. Yep. Uh, th- thanks for joining us, Vivian. We've run the full ga- gamut from uh, feuds to philosophy um, and uh, I'm looking forward to the show tonight thank you as am I thank you very much bye bye
Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard and Last in Line, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Welcome back to episode 93. I hope you've enjoyed the program. This is the final part of uh, this week's program, but it is the first part of our interview with uh, George Delivo from Rhino Bucket. How are you, George? Good. How are you guys doing? Good, good. Really good. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. Um, the last real rock and roll is the new record. Um and um, I'll dive right into that. You've got Eddie Spaghetti for, uh, involved from the Super Suckers. And I, I just, ha- having had a couple of listeners, I don't know what the, I'm sure some of the listeners have heard it as well. What impact did he have on the actual music? I mean, there's some female backing vocals, stuff like that, which maybe people don't expect from you. Um, what impact did he have on, on sort of the sound of the record? Well, I mean, uh, Eddie was a huge influence, actually, at the end of the day, because we had these songs and we had had a, pretty long and at times arduous journey to get to the studio um, and get everything coordinated together. And when we finally got Eddie on board, uh, things started to come together naturally. And then we did the pre-production in, uh, well, somewhere in LA. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he came in and, and like just had a fresh perspective of the songs and, and uh, really took him, you know, I liked the songs a lot before he came in, but the way he kind of like just interpreted them and had us try other things i thought he uh, elevated the whole album did a great job and uh, yeah there was you know there's a one song with some uh, female background vocals and a, um, a b3 and we haven't done that before but it fit the song perfectly and there were some tempo changes he made and so he had, a, he had played a big part it was it was great i'd love to do it again with him and in, in what way would you sort of would you say it's different if at all from from your previous stuff well, I think it's, um, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not that different. I mean, it's still Rhino Bucket, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Four, four guys bashing away. Uh, but I think there was a little bit more um, emphasis uh, or, uh, yeah, emphasis of attention played to, uh, or paid to the part of, uh, you know, the, we actually incorporated some melody this time and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. It's sort of there's a little tinge of Nashville in there, just a little bit, you know. 
Yeah, Nashville, the Angels, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. The Angels. Um, how? No. How? Like we will. I mean, it, it's in these sort of interviews. Everyone talks about the old days and how much the industry changed and all that sort of stuff. But just from record to record for for you. So what is it? Three years, something like that. Um, a bit uh, more. Six. Six. Okay. How, how how has the process changed just in that period? Putting out a record and uh, I suppose the commercial side of it, the the promotion, all that sort of stuff, you know. Well, you know, it's a different animal nowadays. Uh, but we've, um, you know, you can't cry over spilled milk and all that kind of stuff. And and if you do, you're just wasting your time. Mm. The industry keeps on changing, and everyone's you know complaining, and everyone's saying that it's not like the good old days and all that. But most of the people who are complaining aren't in Judas Priest, and Judas Priest <laughs> is doing just fine, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, this is a, uh, I've been in this band for most of my adult life, which is like 140 years. So, <laughs> you know, you're, you either have a passion for it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we certainly do. So we, we did our best to write the songs. We did our best to record the songs. Uh, you know, the, uh, the CD's out and now we're going to try and go and, you know, do as many gigs as possible. And you just do it. I mean, you can't, um. You can't uh, sit there and go like, oh, well, you know, there's no record companies left. And, you know, there's a couple of big ones, but they seem to be only interested in Disney stores. And <laughs> there's no there's no record stores. Mm. And that's true. But, you know, at the same time, if you really get into, you know, if you have a curiosity now in music, regardless of where you are, as long as you have an Internet connection, you can really, you know, get access to a lot of great new music all the time. And that this is a great time to be around as far as a listener. Mm hmm. It is. It's. It's a matter of sifting through it, isn't it? I guess, which is why yeah. people need websites and podcasts and that sort of stuff to to sift through it all. Because it's like a lot of big eighties, well, you know, mid 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 league eighties bands uh, are putting out records just in the last few weeks. You know, your warrants and your, you know, all, all these sort of bands are, um, you know, Great White, uh, Junkyard. They're all putting out records at the same time, and you just wonder how many people would would go and buy them if they knew. You know, it's just a matter of getting the message across. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, a zebra of a different stripe or tiger of a different stripe, whatever that saying is. Because back in the day, I remember a long time ago, being uh, young and and crazy, going to you know record stores when they were still around, and just sifting through, you know, either at first it was LP covers, or then it was uh, uh, CDs, and and uh, you know sometimes it was a cover that grabbed you, and you would check it out and. And hopefully later on they had some listening stations you can check it out. So you're actually at an advantage right now because, yeah, you have to sift through it all like we all did back then in record stores. But mm. now you can actually listen to it a little bit and be you know, like, oh, that's something I want to listen to rather than buying a cover because it has a fantastic cover. And then you put it on and go like, oh, my God, this is crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we before we get a song off you, George, um, the title, the, the Last Real Rock and Roll, on one hand it's very simple and straightforward, but on the other hand it's kind of, a boast as well, isn't it? I mean, it could be taken either way. You know what I mean? Like, did you? Where did the idea come from? Was it just? Was it more the first, the first thought that came into your head, or was it actually, a, um, you know, something you had to consider deeply? You know, uh, I don't think we've, as a band, considered anything too deeply <laughs> in all these years. Uh, but uh, you know, it, it, there was some discussion about titles and and all that. But uh, basically, uh, what we. Um, we like the title because, you know, we still went in there with the same mentality that we've always had, where we wanted to play as as honestly uh, as possible in the studio so that we could do it live because we're, you know, 
we really want to be able to deliver everything live. So uh, the last real rock and roll, because you listen to some albums nowadays and, you know, the guitars are compressed and pro-tooled and the drums don't sound, nothing sounds natural at all. It's all pitch perfect and it's all timing perfect and it's all been computer generated or at least heavily influenced by, you know, samples and stuff like that. And we were just like, you know, we're we're a rock and roll band, so this is like the, you know, this is how you make a rock and roll record. You plug in two guitars, a bass, mic up the drums, and some idiot sings in the middle of it, and then you put out the best you can. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty much the, the theme behind it, you know. Yeah. Okay. Let's have a song. What have you got for us? Uh, let's try Hello Citizens. Just an old radio, but the music's there and we're saving my 
Oh, you got a white line fever. Going to run land down under. Going to turn around the corner way down yonder. <laughs> and I'm not even going to try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever. You get a chance, come and check us out live. We're going to rock your socks off and whatever. Rock like fuck. That's what I say, okay? <laughs> come on down and rock on.